Welcome to the Yang Gang Roundtable. It's 4.02, uh, Sunday, May 17th, 2020. I'm here with Ariel, Faye, D, Jeremy, and myself. I guess I'm not here with myself. That was a syntactic error, but I'm here as well. And uh, this is a basic income advocacy podcast. We talk about universal basic income, poverty, and electoral politics. And we don't have a particular agenda today, but we are all basic income advocates, always paying attention to the news and thinking about what we can do to advocate for our cause. So I'm going to open up the discussion. I think Faye has something she would like to begin with. Yeah, so I was just uh, briefly mentioning that I was on a different podcast that had someone who was running for San Diego um, mayor and uh, in San Diego City Heights City Council, uh, a different guy who ran for that. Um, and it was an interesting discussion between them because uh, the guy who actually ran for um, mayor had gone with me to help me get a, um, well, pretty much into a woman's shelter. Uh, I had um, randomly met him through the gang gang. Uh, <laughs> it's complicated to explain that. Anyway, uh, so uh, he, he went with me and he spent two hours in this um, building trying to find me housing. Uh, and what ended up happening was uh, this building was a shut down um, skydiving place that was registered as a um it was registered as a office building and it didn't even have enough bathrooms anyway so he has been um really deep into uh understanding um uh the requirements for buildings and city planning and uh i could be saying that wrong anyway uh turns out um he stumbled upon uh, a embezzlement scheme uh, related to this building um, where it got foreclosed and uh, at like 3.5 million and they resold it at 7 million under the false pretense that it was an office building. Uh, they didn't have anyone who uh, uh, the the inspection uh they didn't get an inspection or something like something seemed forged anyway it got onto public record and it was accepted and this building uh pretty much somebody got a good payload out of it and so he started investigating some of the buildings uh that um exist and the hud fund that paid for the building like uh Pretty much that's who's uh, getting scammed, which they need that for, uh, you know, people trying to find housing and stuff. So, uh, yeah, because of me needing to find somewhere for me to put my head when I was like at my lowest point, um, we might be able to clean up San Diego a little. Uh, but he's the one doing the work. Um, but that was pretty cool. Well, it's great. Thank you. Um, uh, Zach and Modo have both joined us while you were speaking. So. Say hello, fellas, if you would. Hey, Zach. Hope everyone's doing well. Yeah, we're getting by. And uh, Moto, are you on the mic? I am. Oh, great. Wonderful. Well, welcome hello. to the show, guys. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I was a little bit late. Um, I uh, actually just uh, it was a last, last minute thing, but I just had uh, Dan Larson on my channel, and we just wrapped up a few minutes ago. How'd that go? Yeah, very, very well. Um, great guy. Uh, we had a pretty interesting conversation i think and uh i should have it posted tomorrow that's great um i've been planning i just started planning uh with dan because i keep saying we need this so i'm trying to make it happen i'm planning with dan a uh 
Saturday, May 30th, 3 to 5, uh, on video session where we, I'm not sure, it can go to, one of two ways. Either it'll be a brainstorming session where we figure out tactically how we can inspire other Republicans to run for Congress on a UBI platform, or we simply make a direct call to action for any Republican-leaning people who might be listening, who might be willing and able, and able to run on a basic income platform for Congress. So one of those. Uh, I'm not sure which one we'll go to, but uh, you should you should certainly be there for that, Zach, being one of our most uh, conservative-leaning speakers here. Yeah, yeah, I like to. That, that sounds really interesting. Uh, definitely something important to talk about, and it's not something we, we really went into at all, so uh, it would still be fresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think I haven't heard much spoken about it, so whatever we say will be fresh. I'm excited about it, so I'm glad that you, you plan to attend. Um, so what did you guys get into on your show? Um, we covered a lot of the basics. We talked about universal basic income. Uh, we talked about uh, the coronavirus a bit. We talked about guns a little bit. We talked about, uh, let's see, um, ask them a few questions about, you know, what's unique about uh, any, you know, unique issues um, that Montanans have, uh, the U.S. role abroad, Obamagate. <laughs> How do we end the polarization? I just asked a whole series of questions, and we didn't spend too much time on any one topic, but it was just about an hour long, and I wanted to wrap up in an hour so I could get here without being too late, you know? You know, I've actually avoided I've avoided learning what Obamagate is or is supposed to be. Like, the words go together to suggest it's like a thing that's going to just distract me from my focus at basic income, so I try to not pay attention to it, but... If anyone would like to describe now, now that we're on the show, because this the subject has been broached. What what the fuck is Obamagate? Anybody? He he basically called Trump a child in his commencement address. Who cares? In in Trump is Trump is a child, and Obama <laughs> is, is 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 also shitty. Who cares? Right. Why is this news? It's not. <laughs> fuck it. Oh, that's not that's not Obamagate. I mean. All right. So, what's your take on it, Zach? So, uh, well, first of all, Dan pretty much said the same thing you mm -hmm. said. It's kind yeah. of a distraction, you know. Yeah, um, I can tell and, without looking into it, it's a distraction. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's I mean, the trick. That's the trick. <clears throat> so basically, the claim is that the origin of the Russia investigation into the Trump campaign, and specifically the arresting of Michael Flynn, was all based on uh, shaky grounds. Um, in other words, the reason why they were questioning Michael Flynn was that, you know, he was having these conversations with Russia. But the whole reason why they were why were they were looking into him to begin with, I think, was based off some kind of uh, um, conspiracy that like Trump was in Russia and they were it, he like stayed in a hotel room with hookers and whatnot. And like they kind of defiled the bed that Obama slept in. Right. That's that was debunked. And oh, yeah. and so I, I fully don't understand it. But essentially, the argument was they were looking into Michael Flynn without really having a proper warrant to do so. So he shouldn't have been arrested. And the whole Russia scandal really should have never began because the FBI really didn't have solid grounds to be to be investigating. Um, again, that's the case. I don't necessarily uh, back that case at all. Um, I, I don't fully understand it. So, uh, you know, what does that have to do with Obama? 
because Obama um, was in charge of the office. FBI. Yeah, he was still oh, in office, okay. and he basically gave the go-ahead to start looking at the Flynn and looking into other Trump campaign officials based huh. on this dossier that they knew at the time was false. Hmm. Okay, well, I don't care. I don't, I don't give a shit about that. All right, that's cool. Um, yeah. Who wants to talk about anything else? Anything else in the world? I, I would actually like to hear about um, who else has some podcasts and what kind of networking that has been going on in our own personal circles, because it sounds like uh, there's a lot of that going on. I would love to hear more. That's that's a very uh, healthy mindset to have, Shale, if more people had that I, mindset. I try to like, be the change. You know, this, I hope I inspire this, anyone listening to right. feel, feel comfortable this having my attitude. Right, right. I, I was always like that. I'm like, I, I was always saying like like I live in the epicenter of celebrity BS in like LA and every time a piece of celebrity news came out I was like I don't give a shit I don't give a shit I don't give a shit and like when people want to talk about it, and then I said what good is Obama coming to LA like every single time Obama comes to LA first of all we don't get to see him because it's a shit ton of money to get to go see him second of all he creates a shit ton of traffic and that's it <laughs> like yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, so that's that. And uh, yeah, I I reached out to this guy, uh, NVP. No, 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 NPV, Joshua at the New Progressive Voice. And we had a nice little conversation about me uh, kind of leaning conservative and being a former Trump supporter and switching over to Yang. And it was very substantive. So that's there. What was the nature of your former conservatism and, and what vestiges of it remain, if any? Uh, no, just uh, kind of like, uh, like I was very mad kind of coming out of my education and the prospects for uh, employment being so crappy. And oh, and I was pro-Israel. So like really, really pro. But then, okay, yeah, but but then I, I kind of looked back and I said, eh. You know, it's not really worth it. I mean, like, it was, it was yeah. really fun. Yeah, yeah. It's I, a weird I, I, conflation. Like, Israel has absolutely nothing to do with, um, you know, uh, the anti-Mexican Trump my stance or any of the mean, other I mean, Trump stances. It's just a hodgepodge of unrelated, right, largely unrelated right. things, you know. I mean, I mean, I've been to Israel and, uh, you know, like, like that, and that's, you know, that was fun and all, but like, other than that, like, I really, you know, you know, it, it has, so it was not like an economic conservatism in any way. R right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but, but then, I, but then I was like, and, and then I really believe that like, you know, people should be earning money and not just be given money. But in the case of like all the crap that I saw, like employers doing, and how convoluted and ridiculous these job applications were. I was like, well, no wonder nobody's earning money. Like, they want you to have, like, three, four years of experience to even think about hiring you. Or maybe they want to do make you do, like, a one- to two-year, like, internship. And then I'm like, well, no wonder people are struggling. And then, and then I kind of... I kind of said I, I can't have common sense and logic and keep all of these conservative values when I'm when I'm just seeing how rigged, you know, this jobs system actually is. I said it, it can't. I can't, you know. So that actually like, shocks me. I, I had no idea that uh, you were a Trump supporter at one point. At one point. Yeah, because I was sick and tired of, you know, Obama coming to L.A. and creating traffic. 
I was kind of like tired where, where he kept saying like hope and change, hope and change. And I never really saw anything. He was, he was just like thing. And, and I, and I, and I really like hope that the Democrats ego would be turned down a notch. And I was sick and tired of the social issues and like educational issues always being talked about, but not the economic issues. And it seemed that Trump was finally talking about the economic issues. Like we need, we have crappy jobs and he can get the better jobs. He can get us more money. So I really resonated with that. But then, um, you know, like Yang said, Yang said he got the problems right, but his solutions were nonsense and garbage. So once he got in, I'm like, oh, like, like when he got in, I have to admit, I felt a little bit of that German word, like Schodenfraud to see like all these like super Obama lovers and like kind of SJW people like losing their minds. And I'm like, because, because I felt like I had been ignored for the longest time as a person struggling in the job market and economically. And I'm like, well, you know, but then uh, little by little, I, I saw that the extremism on that side was just as bad, if not sometimes worse as the kind of, SJW extremism I saw on the other side. So that's when I thought to myself, like, you know what, the fringes, whether they're just extremely right or extremely left, are both terrible. And I can't be part of either one of them. And and Yang was just that awesome center that said, you know what, Yang said, you know what I'm going to do, I'm just going to get the best of both worlds and what makes sense and bring them together. I'm like, I'm on board with that. Yeah. Yes. Well, very well said. Huh. Yeah, I um. So wait, the, explain that that word you said, the German word, Schadenfreude. What, what, is, what does that mean? Taking pleasure. Taking pleasure. Yeah. Okay. I saw. I taking pleasure it. in the uh, the pain of someone else or the the downfall of yeah, someone else. Okay. That's kind of what I thought it meant, just by the context there. Um. Yeah. yeah. I I have yeah. to agree with that. I I I found it uh very uh you know fun just <laughs> looking at all those memes of like yeah people on the far left just crying and uh holy cow um yeah uh that was funny <laughs> kind of funny because I, I consider well i, I don't know i mean I, I would probably qualify as far left for most people and i don't feel like most of us were as bothered by that as your typical democrat ironically i think we sort of anticipated Trump winning? I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting to see the other yeah, uh, yeah. other side of it, but I, I know for me, I, I checked out long before. Uh, I mean, this is how cynical. Yeah, I, I was a notch. I was a little more cynical even than than Moto, where I I was as per I was <clears throat> I was a Bernie supporter in in 2016. I was very progressive. I was very burned by Hillary winning, but I thought that uh, well, if him if Hillary steamrolled Bernie, a real politician in the primary. She'll have no problem steamrolling Trump, of a hilarious clown, but not a politician in in a in the general. And I was wrong. I was completely wrong. And actually, I kind of hoped Trump would win of the two of them. I didn't like Trump, but I was like so so tired of the liberal establishment who just failed us since the seventies that I was like anything. Let's roll the dice. The devil I know is so onerous, I would like to try a chance on the one I don't. Turns out he's shitty also. I don't know if he's worth or better. Who knows? But uh, There's uh, something I think right. Charles Murray said. Who I'm, I'm not particularly a fan oh. of him in general, but he had a good good take on Trump. And 
You said uh, this kind of uh, seems to back up some of what uh, Ariel was saying is that it, the right wingers don't even necessarily like or love Trump. He's just their murder weapon. And <laughs> that seems to ring, ring true quite a bit for the, uh, you know, the uh, schadenfreude and the uh, other kind of lethal aspect of seeing uh, the Democratic well, establishment. Well, it's, it's kind of like the South Park episode, the, the douche and the turd. You know, or yeah. You gotta remember too, the, the candidate Trump is nothing like President Trump. Oh At yeah. The, originally, 100%. he was like, "Healthcare, everybody's gonna get healthcare. It's gonna make sense. I'm gonna do it in a smart way. Don't think about it. I'll think it's gonna be smart. Yeah. You're gonna get the healthcare." I'm like, yeah, you know, I like this. This makes right. more sense than, right. uh, you know, you're gonna fill out a hundred forms, uh, talk to nine different like counselors, and if every I and T is dotted and crossed correctly, maybe you'll get healthcare. That's right. better. I would rather take a chance on the fast-talking carnival barker. He will at least be fast, <laughs> right? If nothing else. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. really we just need to investigate how we're doing things. Because, I mean, there's not a lot of transparency behind what people are doing when they are in office. In, in my right. opinion, like, we, we, we think there might be. But, I mean, could you and I personally go in and investigate this that there's you know all these safety protocols i understand that but like uh we're very worried about like how our leaders are handling things but you know can can we poke around to see uh you know where things need to be changed and have an actual input on that too because they're so far removed from the problems you know they live on uh, you know yeah billions of dollars where you know that they are you know, they don't understand what's going on with us. And there's only so like far something like, you know, um, uh, taking pleasure in an SJW's pain can like take you. It's and, and, the, and then it just becomes exhausting, you know, like some some like some it's like it's like then you're not so petty anymore that you just you know, want to see the the previous people who like wanted Obama or Hillary, you just want to see them sad. It's like, okay, like, I'm like, you're done with that. It's like, let's get to the solutions, like enough, you know? Well, I think that's why we need to form these communities in order to talk, uh, uh, you know, a local level on how to fix things, because to rely on someone so far up at the top, like, uh, it, it's not relatable anymore. I think we need to, to form specifically communities uh, that don't identify as Democrat or Republican uh, are are uh, inherently political, explicitly political communities like this one, and uh, don't fall into the trap of pretending third parties are currently viable in, in the United States. So we have to form nonpartisan political communities, in the words of, uh, of Dan Larson, nonpartisanship. I think what the Bernie campaign ran into uh, within the Democratic primary is uh, even not so much like a, a local or a national thing, but how they're integrated with each other. Um, so, you know, you could say, all right, we're going to we're going to do Medicare for all or, or you know, we're going to do UBI and it's going to be so much better than what you have now. But a lot of what people are protecting is not even so much a matter of policy as the patronage networks that they rely on. And I think, in general, the Bernie campaign vastly underestimated the power of those patronage networks. Uh, Could you explain that to me? South what Carolina. do you mean so, by patronage networks? So take uh, South Carolina is kind of where it really all unraveled. And that's an interesting case because you have 
someone who, uh, you know, according to SJW logic, you know, the, the black uh, Democratic voter should be, you know, the your, your perfect uh, audience for, you know, kind of uh, left wing, uh, you know, both left wing social and, and left wing economic programs. But what we saw in, in practice was uh, Biden just clean them up completely. And that was, it was really a repudiation of that entire uh, line of thinking. In this case, what happened is you had, um, oh my God, I'm, uh, Clyburn, uh, essentially is, it runs a political machine there and his endorsement carries a tremendous amount of weight. It's like, all right, why does that carry a tremendous amount of weight? Because you have him essentially being the funnel through which the black churches and all these other uh, infrastructure that is relied upon in, in South Carolina uh, uses to, you know, distribute goods that they do get and you here you have this upstart saying well no we're going to get rid of all of that trust us and we're going to give you something better well i mean the problem is do you that's 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 a big gamble and uh, i think that is something i think uh if yang runs again and uh, the yang gang probably wants to be aware of because that it's a similar uh structural problem I think yeah, I mean, I think the best way to approach that right now is to raise awareness of that the structure is completely non-functional and decayed and, uh, con- you know, uh, it has so many inherent contradictions and flaws that it really is worth uprooting it. There's, it's not worth protecting. I think that's kind of the key, the stance of most of the Yang gang right now. Um, and that we're kind of tasked with convincing everyone that that is the reality of the situation. And it's it's a it's a difficult thing to do. So yeah, the community the, leaders that need to be in charge instead of who are, like, how do we shift focus to them, though? I mean, that's a good question. I, I think, and the question is also, are you, do we want to even uh, replicate those patronage networks? Because, you know, they're kind of ossifying their, um, you know, they can kind of just end up wanting to perpetuate their own existence more than really solve problems. So you know have you really won if you replace the existing one with another one or are no, you trying you don't. to you're yeah, trying you to really create more of a, a universalist vision where you know everyone is kind of has more of like a, a joint uh view of their fellow citizens instead of these pressure groups that are um you know kind of vying for uh table scraps from you know like a party machine and and it's it's a it's a big problem and i Definitely don't have any answers on it right now, but it's definitely something I noticed. Well, I mean, everyone's always trying to get money out of politics. That's the uh, holy grail type answer for that. But you can't get money out of politics because uh, money's in politics. It's a sort of chicken and egg problem. You know, it's very American. It feels feels very American to me. What I noticed was kind of strange when I like because I'm I'm so fresh to politics. Like I'm just playing the catch up game, right? And, like, there was this divide between people who, uh, communication divide between people who get money from super PACs and people who are volunteers and people who are, like, actually on the campaign, working on the campaign. It's like, shouldn't all these people be communicating together without so much taboo? You know, shouldn't there be a better structure? Because, like, uh, I noticed, like, there was a lot of miscommunication and, like, people duplicating the same thing in, instead of evolving uh, structures that exist. And it, it just seemed like a lot of unstructured chaos because of all these rules that really, you know, like you, you got to be like, by the way, I'm not here uh, when you're, you know, 
with all these legalities in the way. Uh, but like, these are the people that need to be able to hear from. Why are they cutting off this communication? I think funnily enough with super PACs, and I'm definitely not an expert on this, but I think their whole kind of purpose for being is just kind of hide who's involved. Uh, you know, you're, you're bundling money from uh, different people to use usually for like a negative ad campaign or um, you, you can't, the, the rules are you can't, I think you can't directly uh, be a part of, of the campaign with the super PAC, but you can make, you know, create ads on behalf of that candidate within reason. So there's, the, there's kind of a, they're almost a loophole They're this purposeful distance between the actual campaign and, and kind of like freelancers and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's dumb as hell. And I don't know why we do that, but you know, <laughs> it's, I just feel like it's, it's just too much of a disconnect. I think in my opinion, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, sometimes you see the dirtiest commercials uh, come out of the super PACs too, because you know, the, the politician that they're on behalf of gets to say, Hey, I didn't say that. I'm not associated with them. Uh, <laughs> you know, they get to be like basically the attack dog that doesn't really have a real connection to the politician. And, you know, in addition to just flooding politics with dark money, they make politics dirtier than it has to be as well. Yeah, it, it, I think it goes back to transparency. There's none. Yeah, you know, Zach, you're exactly right on that. It, it, they, they do produce the nastiest ads because they have plausible, the candidates have plausible deniability for them. And that's kind of their whole existence for a reason for their existence uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So what do you guys think? How do we get rid of them? Uh, overturn. Like a lot of people say overturn um, citizens United. I, I don't know how you just overturn that though. Like I would think that it would need to be um, done by the legislator, uh, the legislative branch, uh, not, I don't think it's something that the Supreme court could just overturn. I mean, I suppose it could, but You'd have to bring a case that kind of introduced a new dimension to it, I think, for the Supreme mm -hmm. Court, too. Other, oh, you know, the, it would be better to legislate it away, definitely. But, uh, yeah, if you... Oh, there you go. Jeremy. If someone, if, if someone did take up that torch, though, and tried to do that, like, is that not a dangerous game? Uh, I mean, people with money have a lot of power. That seems a little intimidating. Uh like you would almost like have to risk everything, I think, to really go after super PACs, right? Or am I just being paranoid? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't think they're necessarily really popular with the average person right now. Uh, they're. I'm not even sure that it's people enjoy. I'm not even sure it's necessarily good to be like, say, you're you're associated with the super PAC. They. It's really just kind of this way to launder your dirty politics, and so no one wants to be too closely associated with them most of the time uh i think there are some that are like you know a little bit less negative but even so they're uh they're probably not a great thing for democracy in general well there's there's always going to be those bad apples but i think there's a lot uh hiding within these but i mean there could be really beneficial ones and very impactful ones and you know i'm not going to disregard the fact that those exist, but for everything else, like, uh, I think that the pain is outweighing the gain. Uh, as you guys, I uh, just saw this. Let's switch gears here a little second. Um, uh, Arlie, you are not speaking into, you're covering your, your microphone. Your oh. Okay, what about now? Is it working yeah, better? better? 
Okay, so just a little bit to switch gears here. Um, Mark Cuban just commented about like a UBI, and he said, "I think that fear of failure is like what motivates people to succeed, and the UBI would take that away." And then he just got an avalanche of comments by saying that like like things like Jeff Bezos got like a ton of investments from his parents and whatever happened to it takes money to make money and just an avalanche of comments just debunking that stuff on the spot but i think like the main reason why these people wouldn't want something like that because he's uh, about like shark tank wants people to come to them to you know pitch their ideas to them so they can fund them but if oh, yeah, anyone it's- entirely yeah. about power like right and, and, right it's about exactly it's a power because it's like you're not going to be our bitch anymore you're and it's also it's for our money if you, what he said were true i mean like take a look at where what you know what class the most entrepreneurs come out of it's not the most desperate people in, in society you know i mean they might you know they might try but their their ability to recover from a failure is, is very limited so you get right. you get you you fail once right. and then you're out, well, you're out for exactly the you, you whereas know, it, yeah with a richer person, you know, they, they can fall back on their trust fund right. or uh, their families and uh, or even, you know, incentives yeah. that they know how to right. get through their so, uh, legal counsel. So here's here's my analogy for all of my gamer buddies. You you remember, like, back in the day, you'd play arcade games or video games that, like, they, they would have no save points, right? Like, like you, you do all this stuff, and if you were on the 10th level and you lost, you had to start all the way over from level one. Now, fast forward to the today's video games that if you were on the 10th level and you lost, you'd start back at at least like the ninth level. There'd be some checkpoint over there so you wouldn't have to start all over the beginning with zero. So you're, you're more likely to invest your time into a game that has some kind of save point or checkpoint or, or you, you always remember and always remember to save your work when you're working on a word document. So when you push save that if a mistake happens, at least you have like a backup file so you don't just lose everything. So UBI is like that backup file that just in case something happens, you don't start from scratch. And right. Right? so what I'm hearing is uh, UBI prevents rage quit. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I mean, yeah. like, if, if I'm going to try, like, you know, here, try this new activity and I get a bruise doing it, all right, fine, you know, that hurt a bit. But, like, if I lose, like, my left arm doing it, I mean, I'm probably not going to want to try it again, you know? That's that's essentially what we're talking about. The, the, the pain would create an aversion to trying again. But, I mean, okay, so I have done a lot of research on trying to figure out, like, ooh, how do I get a lot of money? And I joined all these, like, millionaire mindset kind of groups and stuff. And they say you have to, like, you have 10 ideas, only one's going to work, right? And so they're, like, preparing you to fail nine times. But if you don't have any cushion and you have great ideas and you can only pitch one, I mean, that's one out of 10 ideas that might work, you know? They expect nine to fail. We don't have cushion. Yeah, how many people can uh, can really afford nine business venture failures and, and not, you know, still have a right before they go. Yeah, even, even my more fortunate friends who have like, you know, uh, like upper middle class indulging parents, even the handful of people I know like that, I don't think they could have nine failures. I think like, you know, three tops and then they're like, nah, get a real job, kiddo. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Even and, even something like like college show, you know what I mean? You go to school and like you think that you want to be X, whatever X may be, and you take out a hundred thousand dollar loan to get a really good education, and you come through, and then it turns out that I don't know, maybe that job gets automated away. We are starting to automate away some white collar jobs, or B, maybe uh, that you realize that you, you really just don't want to do that anymore. You know, you're not good at it. You don't like it. But you still have a hundred thousand dollars in debt. I mean, what the hell do you do right. then? And the thing and, is, they they know that. That's why bankruptcy laws exist. You know, you're. <laughs> that's why uh, ancient civilizations had, had debt jubilees because you, after a certain point, the the cost of risk taking and doing anything just becomes too great, and and you end up stagnating or falling apart. Or in the mm-hmm. case of ancient civilizations, you have like a conquering army saying, "Hey, if we take over." We'll forgive all your debts, and then you have like a peasant rebellion on top of an uh, invading army. That's not so much a danger now, but it's just kind of that's just too bad. To play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if there if, were a conquering army. If if failure is inevitable, we should realistically create structures that cushion that, right? Like, right. And encourage failure if if that's the case, because we know we have to fail in order to evolve mm-hmm. any idea. Um, like, but like, uh, so I was talking on a different podcast earlier about um, something similar to this. And uh, like, there's inevitabilities, right? Like, I have to pee. So I need a toilet somewhere, right? I, I need somewhere to be protected from the elements. I need Wi Fi, eventually, inevitably, I need a cell phone, inevitably, you know, because that's education in my, my pocket. Uh, so so if there's all these inevitable things in human existence, why are we having people um, incentivized to uh, leech off money off the people who have to use these services? I feel like the, the incentive becomes greed and exploitation uh, when, you know, it's just going to happen. I, I feel like there's got to be a transition between uh, or like a, a transfer of um, this structure that exists into one that... Um, yeah works better but i don't even know how to do something like that. i think it's obvious that they want their prestige and their power and they're disguising it in morality the end and common sense and stuff like that it's it's all just gaslighting for all i'm concerned now explain more like give me an example the bullshit can i hear an example yeah sure because they'll say like oh but pull yourself up by your bootstraps but you know, you came from a family of means. Jeff Bezos got like thousands of dollars of investment to start Amazon from his parents. And he had that cushion that we're all talking about. Because if he failed at Amazon, it wasn't a life or death situation. He he you know, but but he succeeded. So it's just like going into a casino and uh, with an idea. It's like you put your idea in the slot. And you, you know, pull it and then you either win or you lose. But who's going to go to the casino? The person who's on his last couple of dollars or the person who has, you know, an infinite amount of money that will never run out ever. I mean, they both might go to the casino. But the thing is, if the guy who doesn't have much money loses, he's going to be repudiated and considered morally bankrupt and Right. The bad guy, even if the person with a lot of money <laughs> spends far more exactly. and risks far more and it's loses far standard. more. Yeah, then you know he's he's you know totally reasonable, uh, upstanding, you know. Right, but if you if you because because like if you I I said this and I'll say it again, 
if you play a game with cheat codes, you're not good at the game. You just have the cheat codes. You put on that cheat for infinite health and infinite ammo, and you win. And then you say, oh, I did it because I'm so good at this game. No, you're not. I like that analogy. <laughs> or metaphor, whatever it is. But uh, I, I, I think that really explains a lot, too, if you compare it to, uh, you know, you have... Let's just say person A uh, is low income and it has it qualifies for poverty level, right? And then you got a billionaire. Okay, they're not starting at the same like baseline, are they? Right? Uh, one person's inevitable needs cost uh, time, right? They have to invest time in order to meet their basic needs. The other person has all the money in the world to pay for. Uh, the services and it doesn't cost them any time so i mean essentially uh they they're playing on different games you know cheat codes because you you you, it takes time to acquire right you know the money it Mm -hmm. takes time to acquire the the wardrobe and all this other stuff right right yeah and 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 if if you tell them you know what turn off your cheat codes and play the game now they're not going to want to turn off their cheat codes. If I went to Mark Cuban and said, okay, uh, all, Mark, all the money you have in the bank, all your assets, all your everything, give them all to me. Uh, go into some random town in the USA where no one knows your name. And I'm going to take all your contacts out of your phone, out of your anything. You got no contacts. You got no money. You got no assets. You, go, you got no nothing. I'm going to send you to some random place and make your millions of dollars again. You think you take that on? Let's see. There are very rarely people who take that on, but it's essentially like if you die in Minecraft, you lose all your stuff, right? You got to go back and find new stuff or, you know, hope not all of it disappears, but, you know, in that amount of time. And I I think more people need that restarting. But if we inherit things from previous generations, that's also part of the problem. I mean, some some countries, they'll actually burn all your assets uh, when you die. Like it just it's like none of the family inherits anything and and that way everyone starts at an equal level playing field i don't think that's right either you know there just needs to be more support for people um and ubi brings that support you know encourages encourages people to take risks you know but you know it's like i if i'm really successful in life and i have a family i want to be able to pass some of that down to my kids you know i should have the right to do what I want with my stuff. And if I want to give it to my kids, government shouldn't be standing in the way of that. Yeah. Well, I think this was more like a cultural thing for these other countries. Um, I mean, I I get some of the beauty of it because you have to go on your own hero's journey, essentially is what it's encouraging. Um, But uh, here's the treasures of the one before you, you know? Uh, So I, I, I think there's, there's got to be a balance. I think if it's abundance, that abundance should be like uh, redistributed to other people. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's all about balance. I mean, you still can do that. Like, if that's the philosophy that you want to leave to your kids, like, hey, you gotta you gotta work hard because if you don't work hard, um, you're just gonna end up blowing all the money on cocaine or something. <laughs> You know, um, I, I can understand people not wanting to give their uh, their kids um, a ton of money. Um, definitely makes sense. I just think that should be a personal choice, not something that the government mandates, you know. Well, I would like to talk about um, humble 
people who get humbled, uh, like wake up calls of sorts. There is this person I know, they, they, they're, uh, their family's well off uh, in a different country. And they're like, well, I don't want to be reliant on your money. Uh, well, they, they came to this country. And um, anyway, he was spending money uh, based on what his family would spend like, you know. And he started dating a girl who was really like, I can't date you. I don't, you don't understand the value of money and you're just wasting it. And anyway, so he decided to give away all his money except for, I think, like $10,000. And uh, guess what? It dried up quickly, right? <laughs> and he had to get a job and then uh, like went into journalism. But he was like, oh, I get it now, you know. But it took that humbling moment to like cut himself off in the personal choice. Uh, you know, it might have been inspired by a woman, but uh, now they're a leader of a nonprofit making a lot of good change in our country. So, I mean, it was what they needed. Yeah, wow, that is a pretty amazing story. But I, I think if more leaders would humble themselves by cutting themselves off, <laughs> that would be quite impressive. Yeah, yeah it's kind of crazy just how they, a lot of them don't really seem to understand how much money it takes to do anything. Uh, either they have like wildly inflated or, or deflated views of how much things cost. Like I forgot who said like $1,200 was supposed to last like a couple months and yeah. like and I don't, it's so weird that they have this one size fits all mentality because different things in different parts of the country cost different prices so it's like 1200 to everyone okay like it goes a lot further in like some rural town and i don't know georgia than it does in uh, a metropolis like california correct me if i'm wrong so i don't know <laughs> I I heard a I read an article a while back and people making a hundred thousand dollars in California still need multiple roommates to even afford rent. Like, and I mean, I read that uh, a couple of years ago. I want to say, but uh, I recently was talking to someone who they're like, I make a lot of money, but uh, too expensive, so I'm not actually well off at all. And I'm like, huh, interesting. Right. Yeah, I you know, kind of wonder about that. I mean, I I. I in some place like San Francisco or like Vancouver, that might be true. Like even in New York City, you can, uh, you should definitely be able to afford to live on a hundred k. But, um, but you know, again, you might not, you know, might not live well depending on what you know. If you're if you're going to try to be in Manhattan, maybe you you can't live well on a hundred k. I don't know. You you know what's interesting to me, you guys? It's like a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. Sometimes, even though like things cost far less in some places even even if you lived in like the richest zip code in the country people still do get happy when they just get a $20 discount or a $20 bill even if they live in like they, they, they it, it's still it's still a spike in like dopamine like i don't know correct me if i'm wrong well okay well when i was in san diego i hung out with a lot of the homeless people there uh, they were chilling at, I want to say ocean beach. Okay. And, uh, you know, for them surviving in a city that's so expensive, they get really creative, which is beautiful to see Right. Um, it encourages a market that is different. It's more like social currency plus, uh, you know, what can I make with my own hands? Also, am I going to get harassed by, uh, the police? <laughs> um, cause that happens, uh, a lot. Um, 
but uh, you know, people who come from other parts of the country to go to San Diego to get back on their feet uh, actually tend to struggle to find their own place because it's such a extremely expensive starting point, right? Like, oh, I I have zero money and now I'm expected to pay, you know, a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, three thousand, you know, whatever it be. Uh, for a place, and if I want quality of any kind, you know, you're you're going to pay upwards to probably two thousand dollars a month for rent, um, unless you live out of your car. I met lots of people living out of their car, you know, and I mean, I saw that all over the country when I traveled. But um, you know, <laughs> it's uh, better than sleeping on the streets, you know. Um, I think that that kind of, uh, I mean, r- rent is kind of a, a whole other ball game, though. I, I think. We also, even without getting into the uh, how you enforce or, or uh, control rents, the, the fact that we've kind of turned into an economy where there's only like five or six really viable cities in the country to to make a good living in is definitely not helping. And uh, you know, you've got so many other cities in the country, you know, in the middle of the country, even in you know lesser, like smaller cities in. in California or New York that, you know, are perfectly serviceable in terms of their infrastructure, but just don't have the, uh, the eye of, you know, venture capital. It's, it's just a bad way to distribute resources. An interesting graphic here. Um, so it's that, that green one that, um, shows how much a hundred dollars is worth across the country. So the way that they're you know calculating this is that you know a hundred dollars in California is really equivalent to like eighty nine eighty nine dollars. Uh, a hundred dollars in Missouri is the equivalent of one hundred and twelve. So yeah, it's a yeah a dollar is not a dollar in this country depending on where you are when you factor in like yeah, the cost of living and and the end goods. And what are they pegging the original hundred to? Uh, the cost uh, the cost of housing I think uh, ah. is the, is the main factor. And then you gotta compare that to inflation from previous years, uh, and and compare that the money's worth there. And that uh, if you grew up in a richer neighborhood, that amount of money has become uh, proportionally different in your mindset than a different part of the country at the same time. You know, twenty, thirty, forty years ago, yeah, because like older generations, in their mind, it's the same amount. It's the same equivalency. They don't even see the difference. And then imagine like different parts of the country having like even more variancy. Ooh. I have a prediction here. Um, I think uh, the price of housing and property is going to uh, decline a lot in California over the next two years, maybe as a result of this virus thing and like all the, the lockdowns, snap, as they say. Seems like a people, people snapping. Yeah, I mean, like all yeah. these people Thanos are talking. Snap. I mean, I've, I've heard what you're describing called yeah. Thanos snap. Are you not familiar with that that term? No, no, I'm not. Okay, yeah, just wondering if you were describing it in the same terms I've heard. But yeah, I've heard that that principle described simply with those words. Yeah, I think that seems likely too. What were you saying, Moto? Oh, I think. Well, I mean, define the Thanos snap. I think not everyone comprehends oh, Zach, how you're yeah. translating. Um, so Zach, I'll let you go on in your own words. Sorry to cut you off. I don't know if it was exactly what I was saying. I'm just saying because uh, of all the um, the uh, the hardcore lockdowns that they're doing in a lot of areas in California. Um, I know there's a number of people, high profile people, talking about leaving, and 
if they're thinking about leaving and being vocal about it, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of other people who are also talking about it or thinking about it. They just don't have the platforms to really express their thoughts on it. But okay. people have already been leaving California uh, the past few years now and moving to places like Texas and Nevada. So the trend's already been in place. If any, I just think this will accelerate that a bit, particularly if like, you know, other areas began opening up and they don't have a huge resurgence in, in, in the virus. And, you know, if these other areas, the economies begin to really benefit and California uh, gets hurt, hurt more from staying shut down. I think people are I think there's going to be a, a mess. Exodus. is just the um, housing drop. Uh, a drop in housing market based on a mass death event. So I think that will happen, and that could happen concurrently with the sort of viral flight to less populated areas that you were describing, Zach. I think those two things will combine to affect the housing market. So yes, um, so you were saying, Moto. Oh yeah, I was going to say I think that really will depend on on the long the longer term outcomes from the the virus. Uh, you know, there's some mixed uh, results in terms of the the states that are. Re, uh, reopening uh, if there's you know a big wave that comes through those states then I, I think that'll probably uh, kind of suppress people's enthusiasm for leaving although it, it also depends on uh, what degree of work can be done remotely if you don't need to be in a big city to do work I think a lot of people are going to discover that and they might see that they can have a higher standard of living in other places I know a lot of people in a place like New York City, which has small apartments, you know, that's the whole allure of New York City is that you're always out and doing cool stuff. And if you're stuck in like, you know, a closet sized room for two months, I think that'll pretty much kill your your taste for <laughs> that kind of living. But so I like what you said about the whole remote work. And like, I mean, let's be honest, people are definitely switching over to video conferencing calls. Businesses are recognizing which meetings could have been done from home, right? Uh, and, and like the more we automate more things away as well, I mean, the biggest reason people are in major cities as well is because that's where the money's at. Right. And and so if you can do it from home, then home can be anywhere. Home could be while you're traveling the U S if you're, you know, uh, really into it. But, uh, uh, the, the other thing I think that's important to, um, touch on as these major cities are still going to be a draw until other smaller communities across the whole U.S. vamp up their own communities. If they are uh, in a new area, um, if if they can't earn money, uh, you know, they're going to move back. Or if it's not appealing, they might move back. Yeah, it's it would be a big reversal of the trends that, you know, kind of define the last generation where you, you had... Uh, flight from rural and suburban areas back into the big cities and uh i think i think the that trend was already starting to peter out just because so many of those cities just became too expensive for even uh well-paid professionals to continue to live in uh on the other hand though you might some of the the population decline might make those cities more viable again for a lot of people so uh, i don't know it's gonna be a yeah weird couple of years traffic has a lot to do with it too i think uh in major cities like uh portland oregon and in california there's a lot of major cities the traffic was getting so unbearable for a lot of people 
And during quarantine, these roads became clear and you weren't stuck and stopped traffic anymore. And I think people felt that and uh, that the lack of people and like easier transport. So honestly, I think uh, traffic will play a big role in it. I think a lot of companies are just going to begin to say, hey, you know what? What if we have another resurgence of this virus or another virus in the near future? Um, we need to transition to a stay at home a uh, permanent stay-at-home work environment, you know, the companies that can do this, of course. And that opens up the door to so many other savings and benefits for them as well, because, you know, then you go from needing to recruit people who live in your immediate area or who are willing to move to your city to being able to recruit people from really around the world to do these jobs. And uh, so, you, you know, you get a, a larger uh, supply of uh uh, of applicants applicants for whatever job um but also you know things like like uh the pressure to provide like paid family leave and stuff won't be as strong unfortunately for the worker because you know if you're working from home already uh well you could kind of take care of your kid and work at the same time you know at least that may be part of the mindset that a lot of companies are going to have i think you know, there's just going to be so many other savings and like they don't have to have that expensive office in, in Times Square anymore or downtown or whatever. You know, they can relocate their main office elsewhere or not even have a really essential office. Um, you know, I, I think the savings are all around. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I like the idea of a different incentive. Yeah, the savings for, for a company are huge. I actually work for a company that's uh, entirely remote. They're technically based in Los Angeles, but uh, we're we're all over the country. And uh, I, I know he's been able to outcompete some of our uh, competitors simply by not having that overhead expense, and, and it's it's pretty huge. Uh, the thing is, I think a lot of companies again, you, you have that sort of control factor, and they they're not comfortable with not having their eye on their employee all the time. And there's tech there's technology that you're reading about that can sort of give them a sense of what you're doing, but it, it seems like it's going to ultimately be more trouble than it's worth. It's going to, you know, create a lot of uh, false positives or, you know, employees can find their way around it if they really want to, uh, you know, defraud their boss, I guess. It's just, you know, I, I don't know that we have the, uh, the cultural uh, attitude towards work that that'll make it easy, but I, uh, you know, these are new times. Yeah, this is the conversation that we should be having here. I would say, okay, so part of my conversation with the guy who was running for mayor, uh, he's very concerned about people needing to still work. And I, I think, um, I think the thing he doesn't quite realize, because he thinks, uh, you know, people get lazy uh, and maybe even dependent on this money and not focus on the greater good of the community. Sure, that's fine. That's possible, right? Um, but even all the evidence indicates the opposite, but I suppose it is possible. Go on. Yeah, no, I I don't exactly agree with his. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so the, uh, the fact that we have to work for somebody else's dream in order to pay for money in order to have our own dream, it's almost like we are forced into jobs that might not even be in alignment with our value system, right? Uh, maybe we think, hmm, 
is this part of an atom bomb that I'm building and I didn't even know it, you know, <laughs> like, uh, or, or yeah. am I actually, uh, working on my own small business and I have money to fund that, you know, and I could work on this or I can help a friend work on their projects, you know, where I don't have to worry about where the money's coming from as long as like it's in alignment with my values as a job. I think people will still work. It's part of human nature. Uh, it's just our attention will be uh, in a more personal level. Because because our values are never even given any uh, thought when we're in school. When in school, do they talk to you about what are your values and what are you aspiring? It's just like, just do all this, uh, study all this and memorize all this thing and do all this busy work. And, you know, a job is a job is a job. Just go get one. You know, bullshit. Well, I think it would give the opportunity to learn gardening or to learn cooking or to learn how to repair clothes because you're in your home, you're surrounded by things and projects that you would probably like to work on, you know, a little improvement here. Maybe I can learn how to fix a floor or, you know, uh, house repairs. We don't learn how to live in our own environment if we are completely detached from it. And working for somebody else because, like, we're not moving our own momentum. We are moving someone else's. And I think it's kind of disheartening for a lot of people. There's a, it's a concept called a, in, intrinsic motivation uh, as, exposed to, as opposed to extrinsic. And the, the whole, like, labor system and employment and, uh, you know, uh, wage system is from the employee's perspective is, is extrinsic motivation. Even for entrepreneurs, the idea is that you're, you know, you're showered with uh, riches and, and attention for, from other people for uh, doing something as opposed to doing something because you personally get fulfillment and enjoyment out of it. And uh, there, it's definitely a thing that can happen, but I think not everyone has the same uh, tendency towards it. And I don't know to what degree it can be trained, but I don't think anyone's really tried either. I think we need defining moments to uh, cause us to do something. Um, we we like having motivation and momentum, but sometimes, you know, okay, this has been my experience. You know, I was given the gift of time for a bit. And then, you know what I did initially? I was like, you know, what? I'm going to sit and watch movies play games and then you know those games lost their appeal because it was just droning on and eventually you know I trained into myself oh when I start feeling bored or like lifeless because this is not fulfilling then I will do something that I've been wanting to do right I can learn to redirect my attention uh when I'm feeling bored and unfulfilled uh you know but as long as people train that into themselves and actually try it. But we don't as like, we don't do that as a teaching method either. Like, uh, or maybe we do, but I don't think we do positive. Um, uh, what is it? Not affirmations. We don't encourage it. It's like the yeah. positive, the dogs, the, the thing, like, you know, it's back to intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And it's also about sometimes those, little wins that you get like really motivate you 
But the thing is, is that sometimes when you're first starting on something, you're not going to see those little wins. Like, especially even this podcast, like we're not going to see those little wins until, you know, uh, sometimes months, sometimes years down the line, we see those little wins. And then sometimes not seeing those little wins for a long time can really, really demotivate you. But then getting that monthly check can act as a motivator when you're not seeing those little wins, because, because I know like when I, when the stimulus happened and the, you know, and, and the boosted on employment, I said, well, for all of those times that I didn't see those little wins, it's like this came. So this made it worth it, you know? So I've seen the stimulus check spent in a extreme variety of ways. Cause I'm nosy and I ask people if they got it one. And then I ask, you know, well, actually, then they say what they do with it, right? It's just the next step that happens. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll go with my grandma who got uh, allowances from grandpa um, every month. And uh, now she has a whole stimulus check and she's like, ah, I don't know what to do with it. My grandma's such a sweetheart. I'm assuming she's probably just going to give away most of it and maybe buy a few things that bring her joy, right? Maybe some crafting stuff. All right, let's move on. I found someone else who uh, they used the money to, uh, they donated a hundred of it to someone who just got out of a domestic violence thing. And they also bought some little, uh, you know, uh, pop dolls and some other stuff, but furniture, they bought furniture, right? That's what they're using it for. Other people, they're using it on um, uh, just things to like, They've been wanting, they've been craving. I have a friend who she is uh, needing to find her own apartment. So she's saving it up for a deposit on a new place, right? And, uh, but if she gets more, she wants to buy like a heated motorcycle seat. Okay, that's something she wouldn't have bought, but she's been craving, right? And so it's like this, like almost delayed gratification. There's almost uh, a planning that's happening, uh, budgeting for these bigger ticket items um, with some people. Uh, let's see. Other people who don't need it. They're like, this money has no meaning to me. I've just been, I pretty much gave it all away. You know, <laughs> like, and it, it, it didn't matter as much. It wasn't as impactful for their lives. But like, people are spending it how they need to. Right. And, and a Good lot point. of businesses, it's like that, that creates a buying signal. Maybe, maybe there, maybe there are some people out there who want to donate to, you know, the Yang Kang Roundtable Patreon, but they don't have the money to do it. Well, it doesn't exist here. We don't have Patreon, but go on. Right. Yeah. Or if it, I mean, if, even if it did, you know, something, it's you know. It's public service. This yeah. podcast is a public service. Maybe someday we'll make money in some right. way, but not today. And go on, right. go on. But, but yeah, but I'm just, I'm just saying that there's a there's a lot of if if your idea is really good and you make it into a business but like the people really want your stuff but they can't afford it doesn't mean that it was a bad idea it just means the people can't just afford your things i mean like how how obvious is that you know moreover just because something doesn't make money doesn't mean it's not good or needed or a good idea or valuable right but look look like just the the usps like after what Trump's saying, you know, yeah. Well, uh, the thing is, the USPS used to be totally solvent, and we just hacked it apart. Some legislation designed to destroy it, and now that's just coming to fruition. But, uh, but you know, 
Like it does. This podcast is validated whether it makes any money ever or not. It's already been a success, in my opinion. You know, we're bridging communication gaps. We are changing people's minds. We're educating people. We're advocating for basic income. And I know we've already made some difference. So it's not about the money. It's never been about the money. And we've got to start creating a culture where we judge things in a way that isn't just about the money. Well, people use money as validation, right? Like, oh, you must be doing a good job. And here's this money to validate that. But like, if you're not getting money for this amazing job, it's like, well, uh, that's a little frustrating. I mean, everyone else is doing really selfish things with their money uh, and greedy things with their money that they're getting from other people. Um, But this thing really, you know, actually, this is really important that needs to be done. And I guess uh, I I guess I'll do it for no money because it needs to be done. Right. Uh, And like, but it could be shamed. (laughs) Like you get shamed for not making money. Right. Like, oh, you should be getting a job. You should be taking care of your needs. You know, put Mm -hmm. the oxygen mask on. Part of our job. Part of our job here is to change culture. So that does not happen. And when people try that shit, they just get looked at, like, with a perplexing look. Like, what the fuck is with you? How do you have this weird bias? Get out of here. And then they'll feel bad, and they won't do it anymore. So we got to be the change, one by one, person by person. Make it happen. Don't let that bias stand. Make people who try it on you feel outcast. It's just not acceptable. I mainly notice it from older generations. (laughs) You know what? If you make them feel that way, it's especially shocking because they feel they deserve respect no matter what they say. So if they say something so onerous that you must make them feel bad, then, you know, you have to do it, even if they're 100 years old. (laughs) Some of them don't want to own their onerousness. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on Facebook right now. It's just talking shit on boomers. That's at least how I spend most of my time on Facebook is talking shit on boomers. I honestly think the older generation has specific input that is very beneficial for future generations to learn from that actually hasn't been taught. And the the way they have presented it is a little more um, aggressive and not encouraging. And I'm I'm not trying to blanket statement it, but uh, the quote boomer generation is, you know, like the okay boomer thing. Uh, if you think about it, you know, they, they mm-hmm. that's how they were taught. That in, and it's ingrained in the brain and their neurons are pretty solid. And you have to start, were- start treating them like they're abnormal, like you are the normal one. That's what they re- might respond to, you know, like, oh, yeah. because they're just sensing what's normal. Be like, be like, what? Where did you get that? Like, no. When's the last time you checked anything? And they go, I got to go. I can't. I can't with you. You're not worth my time. You have to take high status, make them question themselves. I mean, I like that. Uh, and OK, so I live a life that's not mainstream, socially acceptable in a lot of capacities. I'm like anti-society as much as like possible. Uh, we'll just start with um, having multiple partners, okay? But a society standard, you know, it's like, whoa, you're weird, okay? Well, you know, you read books on how to be in open relationships, and they're like, just act like it's normal. Just act like this is acceptable. Don't act like you're ashamed or like, exactly. You know, and, and, and if you and, act like that, eventually people will take your cues, be like, oh, I guess it is normal, and they'll start acting like that because that's what those people, a lot of people, just respond to that. You know, that's what they look for. Uh, I would say that has, I mean, I get pushed back. Don't get me wrong. I have people that are like, whoa, 
but realistically, um, it helps you sort out the people that you don't want in your life anyway, right? Uh, but also, uh, it, it's the beginning of a change, right? If one person is willing to stand up and act like it's normal, maybe someone else might. Maybe someone else might, you know, and exactly, it trickles exactly. out. And I think that's the whole thing with the boomer thing. Act like we are the normal ones. Because honestly, we've had education um, online from collective people who are finally figuring out self-help in a, a global capacity. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, we have more opportunities to handle this in a healthier way than any generation prior. Because education is available to our fingertips, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone got quiet. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I had a point that I actually wanted to make before, but we uh, went away from the topic a little bit. Sure. If you don't mind if I bring it back to something for a second. The whole point about UBI potentially um, making people lazy and not wanting to work. Um, I don't necessarily think it would be all that bad of a thing if we had less people in in the workforce. You know, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why wages have been so stagnant for so long because there are so many uh, people in the labor supply. You know, if you're if another twelve thousand dollars a year will effectively take you out of the uh, workforce and stop you from competing with other working class people, then and well, that's not a bad thing. For you know, I want to make a note a, of that before we move on, Zach. If that's a, I want to just make a note of that, and I want you to bring that up as a potential strategic like a uh, talking point when we talk about how to um you know uh, convert republicans to a pro ubi stance and how to inspire republicans yeah. to run on a pro ubi platform because that's a wonderfully republican argument for basic income you take people out of the workforce and those talented hardworking, exceptional americans who are in the workforce still remaining will be much more rewarded that's how the market works that's brilliant zach you please bring that up on the 30th um we'll, we'll yeah so are you, are you done? Are you done, Zach? I didn't mean to cut you off. I, yeah, no, uh, that, Moto will get to you whenever we're next. All right. That, so yeah, please, please go on, Moto. Yeah. Then great. Oh no, I was just saying we we already have uh, surplus labor in this country, and a lot of it winds up in the prison system. So uh, even just getting that out of the prison system, and you know, allowing people to participate in whatever capacity that they uh, they can, even um, would would be huge. And uh, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't have this kind of extreme cutthroat approach to, you know, who winners and losers. Man, I met someone, well, I didn't meet them. I know a good friend of mine who ended up in the prison system uh, recently, and he's like, I felt like a slave. I mean, they don't get paid anything, and they're doing hard work. And, like, uh, you know, some people being put in the prison system are actually just there because of an angry girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, like, uh, I know several people who have had some crazy claims against them and they got punished for it and they're still paying thousands of dollars for someone else's lie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's all right. We need, um, criminal justice reform is like a whole, <laughs> a whole, oh, well, the criminalization topic. of poverty is how it dovetail dovetails into basic income. But of course, of course, criminal justice reform, we need Yang had, uh, what do, who remembers exactly what Yang's criminal justice reform plan was like does anyone remember the details i actually am kind of drawing a blank yeah i'll pull it up here just one second yeah i know i know myself i prefer you know the ye old fashioned scandinavian 
And by ye old fashioned, I mean, you know, current day, a Scandinavian style, non punitive, actual reformative, um, reformative uh, prison system. Define what that looks like. I would like um, village. So, so prisons look kind of like campuses or villages. Uh, people are reformed in that they actually pre- fulfill a role in this little sort of micro community that the village or campus prison is. Like you might be a shopkeeper, or like a cleaner or something. You have to learn. You have some responsibility for the community, and you learn to be a person. I guess you know, with the <laughs> hopefully, um, and uh, they have the lowest rate of recidivism in the world. They have like the shortest prison stays in the world. They have like the lord the, the lowest rate of incarceration in the world. Um, they spend they spend a good deal of money per prisoner, but they they get much much more um, they bang for their buck than like almost anywhere else in the world. Um, and you know perhaps most importantly, it's it's uh, the most humane prison system in the world. It's like it's not it's it's the least it's the least torturous prison system I'm, of which I'm aware. So I think we should aim for that. Taking notes now. I posted Yang's uh, criminal justice reform uh, there in the in the chat, and it, it's rock solid. Um, you know, work to end the use of private prison facilities for federal inmates, shift drug policy away from punishment and towards treatment, invest money to fund innovative prison programs that decrease recidivism and increase reintegration, invest money to support businesses that hire felons who have served their prison term. Push to reconsider harsh felony laws that prevent those who have served their prison term from reintegrating into society, identifying nonviolent drug offenders for probation and potentially early release, implement universal basic income, which would dramatically decrease incentives for criminality and improve the functioning of individuals and communities. That sounds like several steps in the right direction, not quite all the way what I described. Um, does anybody else want to comment? I gotta say, uh, I, (laughs) okay, so when I was doing my research for my game that I'm making, uh, it was interesting because, uh, one of the things I looked up was, uh, what makes a healthy society and, uh, fun fact, um, both, uh, Andrew Yang and Scott Santens had already like, uh, liked that page and I was like, oh, good. They found what a healthy society is uh, for like a baseline. I thought that was beautiful. And it really reflects into his policies in a capacity. I, I had never like I felt it when I was reading them, but like I really confirmed it when I like found a source they probably used. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I feel like they are very mindful about what's necessary. Uh, in order for people to uh, meet these psychological and physical needs that we have. Um, and uh, the prison, uh, like, reform he was talking about, I, I think really does hit on a lot of those points. It's just, like, to actually... Uh, we need, like, just proposals made on how to switch over to them. Um, uh, like, but these project proposals at, like, a... Uh, a level that everyday citizens can access and or contribute to. What do you guys think about, um, you think that uh, prisoners should receive UBI as well? You cut out. You, you cut out there. Cut out. Yeah, I think I am. Everyone's cutting out from me too. So I think I'm having a connection issue here again, like normal. Um, but if you can hear me now, what do you guys think about prisoners receiving UBI? Uh, yeah, why would they not? You know, it's I think it's their con- or you know, it's not it's not constitutional, but I think it's their legal right. I don't think they should be excluded. Um, why not? 
it would give them a nest egg built in when they get out to to use. It might give them something if they need amenities while they're in there to, to also, buy with if they can. You know, why not? Or take care of their family, to give to their family while they're in there. All kinds of valid community and, and society helping things that would happen. Also, prison kind of has a nasty history of being used as like a workaround for uh, <clears throat> positive changes in the country. You know, uh, essentially now it can be used to kind of skirt uh, labor costs. You know, you can apply prison labor to things, you know, that's like slavery light. And you you, you don't want to. That was Kamala that. Harris. Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't you don't want to continue that by saying, well, oh, we can get people off the UBI rolls by putting them in prison. You know, it's kind of becomes a perverse incentive. I'll tell you what we definitely don't want to do. We don't want to provide a, a situation where there is a perverse incentive for the UBI of a prisoner to be temporarily inherited <laughs> to a family member, a spouse. You know, that just creates all kinds of uh, of of a uh, you know murder shirt situations. <laughs> so I want. I, I, I wanted to bring up, uh, I dated someone who had been in the prison system and when they got out, uh, it was really difficult because of the social, um, stigmatism attached to people who go to prison, especially for certain reasons. Uh, like uh, their community had dissipated, right? They, uh, all the resources were essentially stripped from them. They became homeless. They lucked out and had someone help them, you know, and the church really helps people too. Uh, but finding a job was really difficult as well. Uh, you know, cause you got to check the box that you, you know, you went in and people are very discriminatory against people out of the prison system. And so first you have like a bunch of hate from people, uh, who might not have let go of their, uh, grudges. You know, you might even have vengeful people trying to take your money. Uh, maybe you're back child support because, you know, you weren't able to earn an income while you were in there uh, to pay towards it. And so now you have an ex that's coming at you for child support. And it really puts you in such a position uh, that um, encourages you to go back to whatever methods of earning money you were, you know, uh, what, whether it be... Uh, um, you know, stealing from somebody else or wh whatever crime that you're comfortable <laughs> committing, you know, uh, it actually incentivizes you to go back into it because like you've been shunned from the world and excommunicated. You can't just pick up and leave either. You're stuck in that area because of like all the laws of uh, what, <laughs> uh, like you can't leave your probationary. Right. And, and so you're stuck in a community that doesn't even like you. Um, I, I, I think you just hit up on something that's really, really important. I don't see how our, you know, institutions can be stupid enough. And this happens with poverty and criminalization to put people in this state of limbo. To put people in this state of like, okay, we're, we're not going to give you any options. And with the no options that we give you, don't choose anything bad. Th th this is why. It's, it's, it's so ridiculous. It's like to get a job, well, you need experience. But we're not going give, to give, give you this first one. And th it's so easy to break this limbo by just giving somebody a chance. By just giving somebody like some seeds to do something with. And yet, like we spend all this time uh, 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 making people like study hard and and thinking about all these scientific advancements. But these people that are put in this state of limbo, it's it's like we, we don't even it, it's like people don't even care. It's it's just so ignorant and sick and stupid that we're not looking at this.
So um, Jeremy just put in the chat that uh, Yang's actual policy is that um, he would not give the freedom dividend to prisoners while they were incarcerated, uh, and his justification was to uh, cover the cost involved with their incarceration, essentially. He didn't say to cover the cost, but he says because of the cost involved with incarceration. Andrew's position so far is that inmates won't receive the freedom dividend when incarcerated, but once they are released, they can. So I think that's an understandable triangulation. I think people who just look at, on paper, all of Andrew's policies uh, don't have all of us to um, make the case for UBI for incarcerated prisoners to them. So they're going to go, a lot of them go, oh, well, this person did something bad. I don't want to be paying them while they're paying off their debt to society. That seems backwards. So if you have that stance and you haven't considered any of the things we brought up, that's understandable. You would, you would, you would go where Andrew originally triangulated. So that's how I'm going to chalk that up myself. Well, you know, you say that. I think if we actually adopted the Scandinavian model combined with the UBI, I actually think that would be a better incentive. Uh, instead oh, yeah, well, of, of course. You're preaching to the choir, for sure, for me. But, yeah, sorry, go on. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do think there is a valid point, though, of, like, not giving them the UBI while they're in there. Because maybe they commit the crime to go in there so that nobody else bothers them. I'm not saying that's great, because I'm... I'm Oh, you think that that it creates a perverse incentive where our prisons are very nice and also you can go live there and not pay rent and collect your UBI? <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll split the difference with you, Faye. Uh, you get half your UBI as a prisoner. What do you think? Uh, I, I think um, I, I think if you get a fair amount of money for the work that you do and not feel like a slave, I think that and, and that gets in reserve for when you get out I, I and then when you get out you get your first ubi check right um yeah. so you're, you're earning towards that day you move out you know of the prison system ah so you're going with the yeah. boss's original doctrine now all right i dig it so, okay. uh, yeah so um i just switched systems here real quick so let me know if i'm still cutting out you sound, um, you sound good i think i think it's yeah. a bandwidth issue not a yeah it might, it might not be a, i don't know we'll see we'll figure uh, it out phone now but anyway I you think, sound uh, good for now cool um I, I just fear that if you're if your people in prison are collecting ubi i think you're gonna i feel like you create an incentive there where if people know that they're, if they're criminal and they know if they get caught well they're gonna go to jail and at least they'll be fed and they'll have shelter and they have to pay for their shelter or their food and they'll basically have an income of a thousand dollars a month which might be more than they were getting before they were in prison and then when they get out they get a essentially a huge payday after like you know five years they get however how much money that is i feel like was that 60 grand that's a huge payday five years at twelve thousand dollars so i feel like you you might have an incentive where people almost like wouldn't mind going to prison because they know that they're going to get a big payday in the future I got two policies just off the top of my head. I want to recommend that 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 would work to um, counteract those perverse incentives. And this is what I think we do. So one to address the loophole where the enterprising criminal could uh, shrewdly decide to go to prison to collect UBI while paying near, no rent uh, while while not paying for their cost of living. Uh, how about this? In in prison, you continue to receive. Uh, your your UBI. However, the average cost of living 
for, uh, I guess, where you were living before is deducted from your UBI. And also, uh, I would, I'm not sure if this would be the estate, local, or federal thing, but I'd encourage um, the creation of, like, essentially dormitories that, that if, you know, if you are a, 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 a person or perhaps even a family uh, without a home and you can't afford rent somewhere, you can go to, like, a government dormitory and you can, if you want, pay, like, a, you know, a market-controlled, affordable rate, uh, which would be just a fraction of your UBI, maybe 20%. To, to live there and it would be just um pretty spartan but it would be secure and dignified you know uh, I, I think there's nothing wrong with with the government creating the opportunity well, for people to live like that if they want it's a, and that, create, know, that, that gets rid of that incentive yeah to be honest with you i don't even think that the government is necessary there i think if we had a UI, i think there would be private uh i, I think there will be some entrepreneurs out there who might say hey you know the homeless now have an income stream why don't I build cheap shelter for people and uh, they can live there and for a part of that, that income? I don't necessarily know if the government needed space. Maybe. I mean, maybe private, yeah, maybe, maybe private companies could handle that. Maybe. Or no, why, why not both? Yeah, I feel like, you know, uh, government programs could ensure there's an alternative if, if private companies find a way to exploit the situation. And they could right. also keep them com- competitive. So I think perhaps that is the best situation where if, if, if indeed the private market can outcompete, there needs to be a competitor to encourage them to do so. Because the problem is if we just go on theory, the private market doesn't need a competitor. It's just better. So let's not even have the competitor. Then the, doesn't actually, the private market doesn't have to be better. <laughs> so there's a catch-22. Yeah. Well, okay, so uh, where they did uh, a UBI in a different country, I forget where it was, uh, they, like, women's shelters cleared up in six months. The women were able to get back on their own feet uh, without the assistance of anybody else, you know? Like, it gave them a place to land, but once this UBI started rolling in, like, they were able to get back up on their feet. And I get it. Like, if, if you're not constantly feeling crushed by the weight of society, uh, and you can make decisions that uh you have weighed the pros and cons of and made a decision that you have more control over and somebody's not telling you what you can and cannot do i mean some people who have mental illness might need more structure right uh they might need assistance to uh find the help they need uh cater to their needs but uh in general most normal functioning people can find and meet their needs if given the right resources. Right. So UBI right. solves that. Did, did yeah, that's... and I think that could be used to make another Republican UBI argument. We could say this is finally how we can get rid of those nasty bloated safety net programs this... that we are so tired of, and we can do it more ethically than we ever have before. Oh, that's true. Yeah. you know that's the really the Republican argument for yeah. UBI. So uh, Ariel, please oh, continue. Right, that's the thing that frustrates me is that the people who have the most incentive in making sure that people never get back on their feet are the, the, the entire army of bureaucrats who means tests. That's the, the one, the, the, the one, the people, the gatekeepers who, who are employed to make to, to have the most incentive that people don't get back on their feet because if they did, then what good are they? But, and, and, and they're, they're, it's not just lobbyists. We have to look at that too. You know, 
Yeah. There should definitely be a phasing out of certain systems that have been um, easily corruptible. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, easy to corrupt a large organization because there's so many moving parts. It's hard to watch one piece. But I mean, if it's on an individual level and they're taking care of their own thing, uh, it's harder to hide that. Right. In my opinion, I might be wrong. And 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 it's like like you you like the 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 poverty industrial complex that Lucci likes to call it they have built in customers then and and a lot of those customers don't want to be customers but they have to you know and and that that is that is like tyranny it's this tyranny you know can you explain that further i don't quite see uh-huh. that and you're talking no, about like, like, like what, you, get, you gotta come back and say this again uh, the, on right. uh, the 30th 3 to 5 because this is another Republican pro-UBI argument right. Please yeah. continue. So, so the thing okay so Faye what I mean is this I mean that if without a UBI and all this means tested stuff let's say you, you finally find your dream job but you know it's, it's a very low position at that dream job but you want to work your way up but then you say that oh, if I take this job I'm going to lose, you know, the money that I've been getting to pay for, you know, my food and my rent. And, and then, and then that thought's going through your head. And then you say, but then with the money that I get for the job, uh, uh, I, I only have the money to pay for my rent, but not for my electric bill or not for most of the groceries I have. So I think I'll just stay safe and keep with these welfare programs. Well, a UBI would get rid of that perverse incentive, you know, and and that's what I mean by the tyranny of the system. It's like like when when you want to get uh, they, they make you take two steps back before you can take one step forward. It's 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 disgusting. If a Republican would explain it like you just did, they could win. They could win the poor person vote. They could win so many Democrats over. It would be a game changer. It would really be a system shock. And I really want to see it happen. Yeah. Um. It also encourages people to work off the books, too, you know? And that just hurts our ability to collect any income tax from the government. That's a great point, too. So, like, um, see, I feel like I'm able to do the work that I'm doing that I think is uh, collectively the most in alignment with my values. Uh, in a, in a, paired with, uh, you know... I'm I'm working to get money into everybody else's pocket. This is my passion. This is my drive, right? Uh, but do I earn money right now? No. Uh, and so I had to shift my life to uh, live as minimally as possible in order to achieve uh, the goals and dreams and aspirations that I have for my life, which is a, a large vision. Um, and so I also had to create techniques to learn how to manifest money. <laughs> Uh, that is different than mainstream, right? Uh, you know, I have people who are willing to support my um, dreams by periodically throwing me some money when I, you know, need gas money or whatever, because they see the work that I'm doing and they see that I'm not getting paid for it. So like, uh, but I don't ask for much, right? And I only ask when I really need it. Um, but this isn't something that's collectively practiced uh, by society at large. So you know, we don't have dedicated minds working on stuff that uh, might need dedicated minds and teams behind it. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to do it in a way that uh, I can navigate uh, more stealthy 
because I think the changes I want to make, uh, some people could stop me, you know, but if I have conversations where I'm not a threat because I'm not connected to any particular organization and I'm, uh, what do they call that? Where you, uh, contract work? No, no, but you do it for your own, you choose freelance, you know, in a sense, all the work I'm doing is freelance for the United States, right? Uh, so that I can make my family and friends, uh, survive, uh, so that I can help encourage money in other people's pockets. Like, I feel like the work I'm doing is very valuable in, uh, in a capacity that, um, isn't rewarded financially, uh, through any corporation, you know, and, and sure there could be ways I, um, shift that and I could be better, uh, meeting my needs. Uh, but honestly, I don't worry about myself much these days because I feel like I found a community that's willing to support me while I do this work. Um, but again, uh, society is not, um, structured for people to just give up their lives and like fully dedicate to something like this. Clarify, you're talking about your work towards UBI, your work as a UBI advocate, right? Correct. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thing. Yeah, you're right. It's not. Uh, um, and, but more and more, a society kind of falls apart. That's kind of, you know, perhaps what we have to do. What else can we do when we're we're left with uh, as our lives are all falling apart around us? Honestly, society falling apart is making this work so much easier. Uh, and I hate to say it, but I I'm kind of glad society's falling apart because. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, a society as cruel and as crazy as this really needed a foot up its ass. I just want to get that out there. But then, but then it can learn after this. It can, it, and I think it is learning. I think we will learn. I'm not quite so. I mean, I think we're gonna try to do everything wrong if we can. I think no, but, but it, see, it won't have... work this time. It won't work this time, though. Uh... But, yeah, I, it's it, it. I mean, I mean, if if we play our cards right as the Yang Gang, like we can really, really capitalize on this thing. All we have to do is create the framework that people step into. So it's just like you know, living your life without like you're the weird one. Remember that conversation? Uh, and and what I'm doing is normal, and we should be adopting this as normal uh it's the same with society here's our framework this is normal look everyone against ubi set to ask them if they ripped up their stimulus check so you must have thrown your stimulus check in the trash right it would have created inflation so you didn't cash it you didn't put it in your bank you would have created inflation right well actually no no that's different i i i did i did put it in a okay so what are you talking well, honestly, the stimulus check has helped encourage some of my most resistance, uh, resistant friends from UBI or to UBI. Like one of my friends, she was like hardcore against it and she had a million points against it. Right. And then now her uh, concern is dependency on it. And I was like, all right, well, just pretend it's only for six months. OK, let's just imagine we successfully got six months of stimulus. You would plan with that money, wouldn't you? You would save with that money. You would. Um, have urgency. Like, yeah, I, I I got a good point on that dependency thing. Um, right now, shutdown. People are discovering that you can't really be dependent on your job either. You know, I mean, nobody wants to. That is a great point. That's a great point. But yeah. why should we want to be dependent on the corporations? You know, they're not more reliable than the government. Right. In fact, they're often less reliable. 
And if we have AI, we have two sources of income. And, you know, in reality, more income streams somebody has, the more flexible they're going to be, more resilient. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, UBI is this uh, income stream, but it's only $12,000 a year. That'll not enough to, to live on. Um, but job where we got to shut down the government at work be a huge help. Yeah, you're cutting out quite a bit, but $12,000 in a year is enough to survive on, but not enough to self-actualize on. You will always have motivation to work, to contribute to society for money, which is a proxy for value. And, you know, whether you feel positively or negatively about that, it is the way we do things, and that's a different conversation. But that works with the Exxon system. So you will not have the uh, fear of, of, of not making enough money to, to survive. You will, you will live, but you will not self-actualize. So it's kind of right, right there, you know, you, you're right in the middle um, right. where you oh, will have the, the motivation is not going anywhere, but the panic goes away. The, by the anxiety way, goes away. I it's got it's some just a win-win, yeah. If, if we could make the UBI $1,200 a month, because they gave us twelve hundred stimulus instead of a thousand, we'd have uh, fourteen thousand four hundred a year. Just the thought. That's like a the bought up an old modem. That's what that makes me think of. Anyway, but this also okay. So someone who I met in the um, I'll just say nomadic because I think that's a better term. Uh, the nomadic community. Uh, he bought a van uh, with his money, and so now he can like stretch out uh instead of the vehicle he was currently in right and uh he has more room to set up a shower and he could deck it out but he's like well or i could just fix it up and give it and rent it out to people really cheap in this major city that's super expensive you know they pay a couple hundred dollars a month to stay in this van now that i have an extra space uh since they don't uh, can't afford their own vehicle they can't afford uh, rent, but this is a good landing spot for them, you know. And so, like, it encourages people to um, use this money in order to help others as well, you know, or themselves to upgrade and fantasize about like little projects they can work on too. And so, they're spending money back into the economy as they do this as well. So, um, Moto, while you're here, let's let's have some more of your counterpoint. Let's have some more of your doom and gloom. I, I want to hear why austerity <laughs> is going to win the day anyway, because, you know, that's what's been happening, right? My whole life, it's always been austerity that's won out eventually. Why is I it not? Why, why would gonna, it be different this time? I don't Go know on. that it's going to win out for sure, but I, I think the instinct that you're going to see coming off of this is that we spent so much money on uh, addressing the quarantine that we need to now enter a period of, of non-spending or low spending to and program cuts to make up for it. Now, I, that's not necessarily borne out by any kind of facts. In fact, uh, it looks like we're bound for some deflationary pressure. Like inflation may not, you know, is probably not on the table for uh, the foreseeable future. But we're that's so ingrained in our politics. The idea of uh, of, of uh, this debt framed as a household uh, as a household good or a household debt where you know you you can't spend more than you have instead of the kind of uh mass produced fiction that the national debt is and uh i think it's not necessarily that it can't be overcome but i think 
definitely can't underestimate how resilient these ideas are. Any responses? Thank you, Moto, for laying that out in, in its entirety. So so what do you guys think about that? I want to hear. I, I think it's because, like, Democrats kind of, like, mixed in, like, economic justice with a lot of, like, social SJW stuff when it comes to going head-to-head with Republicans and conservatives. But now that we've gotten so much more, because, because we always get that stereotype, like, oh, well, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, guess what? We have all the facts. We have all the data. We have all the math. And now austerity, if you want that, you're going by your feelings and you're not going by facts. So we can finally turn their arguments on its head, you know? I'm a little bit older, so I guess I'm a little more cynical about this, but it used to, the, it, it actually used to be the other way around. Uh, the facts were like, uh, what, what it was, uh, reality has a distinct liberal bias used to be the, the same, the, the saying before, uh, you got to more of the, the current like social, um, maximalism that you have now. So I don't think that alone will do it because I, I think the truth is every side is irrational and has their uh, their kind of uh, preferred explanations for I, the world. I think, well, I'm praying that there are really more moderates on both sides that there are in the extremist fringes. The extremist fringes have been the loudest, but it's time for the moderates to like raise their voice really, really loud. And if enough well-meaning moderates on both sides of the political spectrum came together and raised their voices, we can finally get rid of these fringes that have made things just so dysfunctional and so ridiculous. See, um, I guess there's, I don't think it's necessarily a matter of, of moderate versus uh, extreme or or even, I don't even know how you, you go about defining those these like days. I mean, is the, Wanting to stick to a, a neoliberal system during a pandemic could, you know, technically be called extreme. You know, that's that's a, a function of, you know, uh, wanting your uh, ideology to rule to even when it, it's clearly not working versus. Uh, but, you know, th- these are generally the people that have been considered moderates for a few decades. So it, those those kinds of framings are. They can be rhetorically useful uh, during campaigns sometimes, and I think um, it's always to people's benefit to make their argument in a way that uh, makes them seem not extreme, even if they're asking for something that's extreme. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. You want to demonize your opponent, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, when you hear extreme, I think, like, terrorism, kind of, you know what I mean? And, like, you know, basically saying that your opponent trying to radically, and, you know, there's a chance for a disaster. <laughs> um, yeah, it's usually used in like a very negative way. And I mean, like, sure. And I mean, like, you know, and the question is, is, is UBI extreme? It's like, well, compared to what? I mean, in what in what context? It's to be extreme in, uh, you know, the 80s or 90s when, you know, giving handouts for anything was considered, you know, a, a mortal sin where, you know, if you go back to the seventies, well, you have like Milton Friedman uh, flirting with it. And, you know, and now the idea is that you present the idea in a way that 
makes it seem sensible rather than pie in the sky and, and you try to use the conditions, the current conditions to uh, make your idea seem moderate, which is, you know, similar to what uh, Bernie was trying to do with the Medicare for all. It's um, what's extreme. In, I guess uh, what's extreme in one circumstance is, you know, banal in another. And I think that's the thing. Well, I think I, what about. I would say is reframe the conversation entirely. Say, no, no, no. The entire false dichotomy of, of, of left-right, of extreme, not extreme, is just more distraction. I'm not going to talk about whether this is extreme or not by your terms. And, and I don't know why that is something you take into account. If you look at the policy and you see that it makes sense and all the data is there, why does your sense of it being, oh, extreme in a very impressionistic way even matter? And I'm going to say to you, buddy, I think you're just afraid of change. And you got to relax. And that is how you should deal with your fear that this is extreme. That is what that's the case I would make this to anyone. So um, in a previous conversation I had with somebody else, uh, they were talking about how someone millionaire, billionaire, I'm not sure what they're like, a, like coming to terms with the need for a UBI. And they were like, you know what? I think uh, we kind of need this so that like more extreme measures don't happen. I think, you know, like revolting uh, is technically a possibility but in their the way they presented it it sounded like the person was like uh we we gotta keep them happy otherwise uh things are gonna go chaotic let's keep them at bay but really i mean uh that's that's kind of the approach they heard but um i mean realistically if you're stressed over money your iq drops right and then maybe you're fighting with your spouse over money because, you know, they spent money where you couldn't afford it, blah, blah. So now you have tension between relationships and drama, right? Uh, if you give people money, that's no longer an issue. They don't have to fight over that. And they don't even have to use bandwidth in their brain of, like, what we can and cannot buy necessarily based on survival needs. Um, that is another yeah. Republican argument for UBI right there, Faye. I hope, I hope we, we remember this in the 30th. It is a moral Family-based argument for, for keeping the nuclear family intact. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, sorry, I did not mean to cut you off. I just want to make note of this. Did you just so, so please continue if I had more to say, Faye. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, you could, uh, you have the money to take care of your needs and you're no longer fighting. And then you're also spending the money back into the economy, which makes the big business happy too, right? They want the money being spent. If nobody has money, nobody gives them money, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, uh, I mean, also, uh, if you get closer and closer to survival, like you take away my house and I have a gun, uh, you, you might see me pull that gun out, right? Uh, because I'm defending what my survival is. And the closer we get towards death, you know, looming over our heads, the more aggressive, you know, if you aggressively go towards an animal, uh, they might become defensive their fangs might come out or their claws might come out right like you're or especially if you're trying to destroy their home or whatever you know they're they're going to protect it <laughs> alex jones said he was going to eat people i do recall that <laughs> it's pretty much uh, par for course for him i'll eat my neighbor's ass oh i mean let's all hope it doesn't come to that right this is what we're trying to avoid <laughs> but but that just explains the need for ubi more is so that we never even get close to like taking away someone else's survival because you you bet we're going to defend it. Uh, you know, yeah. we're going to become more desperate, and we might steal from other people. We might, you exactly. know, just back to that incentive to uh, 
do crime, you know? If you are in a place where you're bragging about first order of business, I'm ready to eat my neighbor's family. Why is that your go-to? Why do you think that's where we are as a society? Why is that where you want to be as a society? Or if not, why do you think it is inevitable as a society? I'm a real negative guy, and even I'm not that negative. What in the world is wrong with you, man? My friend, why do you think this? You know, why? I just don't understand. And, and Alex is rich. Like, he, he yeah. has money. You know, I think, I think a lot of it is showing me. You know, he knows if he says some crazy things, it's going to get attention. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Especially with him being banned from all these platforms. Like, he really just has his website, and that's it. So, like, he's really got to be loud and ridiculous things if he wants to yeah, make some headway and attract new audience. It's unfortunate that, that that strategy does work as a bad faith tactic in yeah. the economy of attention. That is probably all it is, because that is what works, and that's what we see. Not a lot of good faith stuff actually <laughs> reaches our eyes. So It goes back to ears. the perverse yeah. incentives. The more, per, the, the more yeah. struggle we have, the more and more incentives get perverse. Let's have noble incentives and stop the perverse incentives, for the love of God. Exactly. That's what we're trying to do every time we do this podcast. We're trying to tell people that. And it's back to the distraction thing, too. You know, like, oh, this is where we need to put our attention on is like, you know. The- and that's why we just do this over and over again. We just bring it back to the, to the unifying policy of basic income. And once we get that, we can we can work on all these other things that you want to distract us with. Right. It's just more easier to look at that stuff and just look at it as sat. There was there, the, and then the people made a song about it, and it was really funny. Yeah. Hey, um, on the family values, to add another thing to your list, Shell. If we have UBIs, there'll be a lot less abortion. Oh yeah, for sure. We gotta talk about that. Absolutely, for sure. We gotta talk about that. Like Jesus said, "Love thy neighbor as thyself." Not eat thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is not the thing that was said by that bad person. <laughs> if you, fellow Christian, are starving, eat your neighbor to show him. So, um, uh, we were talking about, uh, like, back how everything can really go back to the UBI. I mean, a lot of my research that I've done, just I, I feel like almost all of the problems in our country could be solved if we had a UBI. And, and like, every time I do more research, I feel like it comes back to that. And so any topic can, including the abortion thing. I mean, some people are like, what, you're going to raise this kid alone with no money and you dropped out of school? Statistically, if you're pregnant as a teenager, you drop out of school, you know, and more likely that your child will also drop out of school and get pregnant early too, because that's what mom did, you know. Um, at least statistics have said this and, you know, but imagine if you had a, a floor <laughs> where you didn't have to struggle because that's the big thing is there's such a struggle, you know, you can have community help you raise this child, uh, and maybe pe- more people have more free time because they're getting paid and not working as much and they can watch the kids while you're going to school, you know? Um, but, yeah. uh, and, and, and then you continue your education and you continue your fight, you know, um, to raise a child because maybe you do want to be a that's fine but society has been making it difficult and maybe uh you know their teenage boyfriend uh dips out or even adults it doesn't matter what age you your boyfriend dips out you can still take care of that kid easier if you have a ubi right and you don't have to be dependent on 
um, yeah, child support. Absolutely. And anyone who says no, 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 that working mother needs the 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 fear, the fear that she and her child will die is healthy. It's what's what keeps us going. You have to you have to address that directly. Say no. Uh, I will not let you sell me on fear as a virtue. I the, will not let you sell those, me those, on, on on suffering for no sake at all as a virtue. And then you make them answer those words. What will, they, what will they say? I don't know. What will they yeah. say? Yeah, that's what I keep thinking. It's it's like th- th- this is the kind of ideology that belongs straight jacket and a mental. But we have it running our lives. It's about time we started confronting it. It's 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 like having the the crazy uncle at the table, and then you want to call out like his stupid behavior, but everybody just says, "Shh, let him do what he wants." No, 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 no more. Shh, shh. We're gonna say something. You say that, and I thought of this particular person I know. Uh, she has three kids and uh one of the kids um is got an eating disorder eats so much that they vomit pretty consistently uh which is not healthy um but they also scream and yell at their computer uh, in a way that's kind of uh concerning right and uh i was like hey maybe you should go check on them are they okay they're like oh that's just how they are what (laughs) Okay, uh, maybe you should take your child to the hospital and maybe have a nutritionist, but also maybe they're emotionally distraught and that's why they're overeating. So maybe address their mental health issues so that they're looking at other people and causing other people potential trauma because they're being attacked. Well, that's that's Uncle Sam. He needs to, you know, go to the mental hospital and get a little bit of help back and not be such a deadbeat. But to explain it away as if, like, that's just okay, like, uh, no, maybe you should raise your bar of what's acceptable, you know, uh, because what's the trickle-out effect? If someone gets that, yelled at, yeah. they might yell at someone else, right? <laughs> that, that was the Yang campaign. Raise our bar of what's acceptable. That will be a great 2024 slogan. I like it, I like it. Raise I'm the okay. bar. Raise the bar, secure the bag. <laughs> bar none. Rise above. Floor. Raise the floor. Raise the bar. (laughs) We are. um, We are at time. So how's everybody doing? Um, Should we wrap it up here? Yeah, I'm good. I I liked it. Yeah, Yeah, we could wrap um, it up. Great, great. Um, so uh, let's all say goodbye. Give our Twitter handles. Uh, Ariel, you first. Okay, my name is Ariel. You can find me at at Ariel's underscore motto. That's A R I E. L S underscore A R M A D A and uh I just put out a video on revolutionary thinking on YouTube. Thank you, Ariel. Faye D. Hello, hello, my name is Faye. My Twitter handle is uh Tisdoni T I S D O N E Y. Thank you, Faye. Jeremy. Follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Salmons One, and that is J E R E. M-Y-S-A-M-M-O-N-S, and the number one. Thank you, Jeremy, and our guest, Moto. Uh, You can find me at M-O-T-O underscore M-O-T-E-S at uh, twitter.com. Thank you, Moto and Zach. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Find me on Twitter at Zach, D-A-C-H, Gore Sacker, S-R, also on YouTube at the Liberal Conservative Report. Uh, in case you did not hear all of that, because that got a little bit choppy, it's at Z-A-C-H 
S A C H E R on Twitter. And my Twitter is at S H A E L R I L E Y. Thank you for spending some time and listening to us. Keep fighting the good fight, and I hope you will listen to us again soon. Stay safe out there. Take care of yourself and take care of everybody you can. Bye.